Well then, with a, a view to the help of God, let's uh, turn to that passage we read in Acts and chapter 26. And the well-known words of verse 28. Acts 26 at verse 28. When Agrippa says to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Now, of course, over the last few weeks, we've been uh, considering uh, a group of people who were important and famous in their own day. And in God's providence, they appear before us, sometimes very fleetingly, in the pages of the New Testament. And although they are recorded in secular histories and in archaeology, they're best known today because they appear in the Bible and because they either met or heard uh, the Apostle Paul. And as I've said more than once since we began looking at these people, unknown to them, uh, these were the most important occasions in their lives. Now, the fact is at this point that Paul has yet to appear before the Emperor Nero, and he will in fact appear before him twice. But apart from these final meetings before the Emperor, because after all, he claimed his right to appeal, and he was given that right, and he did appear before them, before him. So apart from those two appearances, uh, these are his last meetings uh, brought to a judgment seat or to a tribunal or something to that effect. Now here, of course, he's standing before two uh, very different men. A woman, too, who I'll mention in a moment. We're not told anything about the woman's response, but we are, of course, told how Festus responded and how Agrippa responded. Now, the first person is Festus, who is, as I mentioned last time, the latest of the Roman procurators placed in charge of the province of Judea. And we saw his response to the gospel last time. And although Paul reasoned concerning the truth of the gospel to Festus, it was simply foolishness. That's what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians. Corinth was full of philosophers and students of philosophy and he reasoned with them and he told them uh, that to many of them uh, with their mindset uh, the gospel would indeed be foolishness and that is how Festus responded. You'll remember last week that he interrupted with a loud voice and he said to Paul that you are raving or crazed and it is your reading and your studying that's done that. In fact, he says, it is driving you mad. So really everything Paul had to say about God and about the prophets, about the ministry of Jesus and the resurrection, even what he had to say about himself, the life that he lived and how that life was powerfully changed by God and how he was called to preach the gospel to Jew and Gentile, all that just went right over Festus said, and as far as he was concerned, well, he was a bit like Gal Gallio, the 
um, the um, proconsul in Corinth. It was all a matter of words and names, just things that meant nothing to him at all. And I've known people like that myself. Maybe you do too. You may even be one of these people for whom all these things are just words and ideas that are really quite nonsensical. Well, that's how Festus responded. But you'll notice in the passage that Festus' response just doesn't uh, knock Paul off his stride at all. He says uh, Festus is the one who, who intervenes like a madman after all himself. But Paul just says, I'm not mad. He says, I am speaking the words of truth and reason. And with that, he just leaves Festus and immediately says to the king, because the king, he says, before whom I am speaking freely, knows these things. And then after a few words, he addresses the king directly, which was quite a bold thing to do, and says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know, he says, that you believe. The fact is that Paul really, well, I'm not going to say that he's not interested in Festus. He is interested in Festus. And uh, every preacher is interested in every hearer. That's true. But Paul has already had an insight into what Festus is like. He has seen his uh, dishonesty and his cowardice. His inability to do what was right um, in the sight even of the Roman law. So he knows that a person like that is probably not going to be in the right place to hear. Now, I know that the power of God can come any time and change any, any person any time. But you do remember in Christ's original parable, his foundational parable, which is the parable of the sower and the seed, he tells us that the seed falls and takes root in the heart of a man of honesty, in a, an honest and sincere heart. And this person gives every evidence that he's just not ready to hear the word of God. But he knows, even from observation, that things are different as far as Agrippa is concerned. Now, not every preacher has an insight into the souls and the attitudes of those who are hearing him, but sometimes it can happen that that's so. Um, you can see sometimes in the bearing or in the face or in the attitude of someone whether they're really listening to something or not. And I think from the way that Agrippa, um, from the way that Paul addresses Agrippa here, Paul has a sense that the words that he has spoken have reached this man, that, that they have touched him to some extent, and that's why he addresses him so personally and so directly. Now, in a way, uh, in a way it's no surprise that Agrippa has been challenged or moved in some kind of way by the things that he said. Because, first of all, Paul tells us in verse 3 that he is an expert um, in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Now, Paul isn't a flatterer. If that wasn't true, Paul wouldn't have said that it was true, that it was the case. So when Paul says that, he means that. He knows that King Agrippa is an expert in things that have to do with the customs and the questions that agitate the Jewish people. Now that's saying a lot. Uh, for him to interest himself in these things 
says something about the way that his own mind works. It says something about his thinking. I don't know, for example, if you are interested in the religion and culture of your people. In the providence of God, he has placed you here. You have either been placed here by birth, or you've relocated here, or whatever. But this place has its own religion, it has its own customs, and its own religious customs and traditions. Do they interest you? Have you any kind of desire to learn where they came from, when they came, how they grew, how they developed, what it is that made this place itself, this island or even this group of islands, what they have been historically under God. Well, at least Agrippa had that interest, so much so that he was an expert in it. Second, as well as being an expert in these things, Paul goes further and tells us that he knows, that is Paul, he knows that Agrippa actually believes the prophets. Although he asks him the question, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He effectively answers it himself in verse 27 by saying, I know that you believe. Now again, Paul knows what he's saying. He's not just saying that. He knows that to be true. Now how he knows it, we can't be sure, but he just knows it. And I know that many of you who are not Christians and many people who are hearing the gospel but who have not yet committed themselves to Christ still nonetheless somehow or to some degree or another believe the Bible. After all, to believe the prophets is just another way of saying, Agrippa, I know that you believe the Old Testament because the Old Testament is essentially the work of the prophets. So I know that you believe the Bible, which you have studied, and which you have come to a considerable knowledge of. Now, for whatever reason, uh, well, we know the reason deep down, and I'll come to it. Uh, Agrippa has not yet come to such a belief and a knowledge of God as to have his life changed and revolutionized and transformed. He has not been born again by the power of God from above. He is still Agrippa, flesh, born of the flesh, a natural man with natural understanding. But he still believes that the Bible is true. Is that you? If I was to ask you, do you believe the Bible? You'd say, oh yeah, I do believe the Bible. If I said to you, are you a Christian? You would say, I am not a Christian. Now, I'd like to question you as to how you believe the Bible and still aren't a Christian. Maybe you wonder yourself, how is it that I believe the Bible and I'm not a Christian? But here you have somebody on Paul's authority concerning whom it is said that he believes the prophets, but he is not yet a Christian. So he's an expert in Jewish beliefs and customs. He actually believes the word of God. And perhaps unsurprisingly, in verse 8, Paul tells us, or he asks Agrippa, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Why indeed should it be thought incredible by you? In other words, the prophets that you believe have written about resurrections in the past. Elijah 
raised a boy from the dead. The prophet Elijah, who succeeded him, also raised a boy from the dead. Elijah's bones had the power to raise someone from the dead. So why, Agrippa, when I speak about Christianity and when I speak about the Lord Jesus Christ himself going into the grave and rising out of it, why should that be a priori incredible to you? You have a worldview that admits it. You, you are so open to the idea of God that you don't think it incredible that someone who died can actually live again. So that is the kind of man that we're actually dealing with here. And I suppose to that extent it's no surprise that he is actually moved by what the Apostle says. In another way, um, it is a surprise. And I suppose in some ways it's a surprise that he has the opportunity to hear the Gospel at all. When God um, gives you the chance to hear a gospel and when he removes the chance to hear the gospel, there are messages in both these things. This man had a granduncle, Herod Antipas, uh, who wanted to hear Christ speak and Christ famously didn't answer him a word. Not a word. There was judgment in that. Make no mistake, there was judgment in that. That was because of how Herod Antipas had lived his life, what he had done with the gospel and what he had done with the preachers of the gospel, especially beheading John the Baptist. And after years of religious abuse and persecution, when he asked Christ a question, Christ had nothing to say. And the last thing I want to be true concerning yourself is that a time comes in your life when God has nothing to say to you. When he said everything, to you that he's going to say to you and he says no more and that can solemnly happen in people's lives they're removed from the gospel or the gospel is removed from them things happen providences move on and the opportunities aren't there anymore there's a way in which you would expect well i mean if you think about a couple of weeks back gallio uh, sitting on the chair of the proconsul in corinth has got Paul in front of him. And if you remember, when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio stopped him so he didn't hear the gospel. You, in a way, might expect that God would shut Paul's mouth before Agrippa has a chance to hear. The reason I'm saying that is because this man has a long family history of gospel rejection and gospel opposition. He's a brother of Drusilla, a wife, the wife of Felix, who we looked at a couple of weeks ago. If you remember, she died in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. She died in Pompeii. That means that King Agrippa II here has as a great-grandfather Herod the Great, who was involved, remember, I alluded to this before, in the massacre of the infants in Bethlehem, and died one of the most excruciating uh, deaths ever recorded on a deathbed. Someone who tried to kill the Lord Jesus Christ in his infancy. I referred already a minute ago to his granduncle, Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist and faced a silent Christ. 
His father, Agrippa I, this man's father, killed the Apostle James, the first apostle to be put to death. He imprisoned Peter, intending to kill him, although Peter miraculously escaped. And he also died, evidently under God's judgment, in the middle of making a speech, a speech that was so eloquent and impressive that the people hearing it thought he, he must be a god to have such powers. We're told that God struck him dead and in a graphic figure that he was eaten up of worms. Something evident, an intestinal uh, disorder of some kind, a mark of God's displeasure and God's judgment. But here you have, on King Agrippa himself, an opportunity to hear the Gospel. That tells us a couple of things that are worth remembering. The first is this, that you need never feel crippled uh, by your own family history, even, it's a fa even if it's a family history of rejecting the Gospel or being opposed to the Gospel or just being nothing as far as the Gospel is concerned. You needn't feel that you are doomed to repeat or to copy the mistakes of your own fathers or mothers or forefathers or foremothers. Uh, God does not see it like that. You're not trapped or bound like that. And if there's any response in you at all towards the gospel as there was in this man, make no mistake, God will meet you. God will meet you and God will give you the opportunity. And if you reject that opportunity, you will know that you rejected it. You will know that and it will be made plain to all who are lost on the day of judgment that the rejection of the gospel was ours. God doesn't hold the sins of your ancestors or your relatives against you. That is just the fact of the matter. And that is why this man has an opportunity to hear the gospel. So in a way, it's surprising that he hears it. In another way, it's not. And it's not surprising that he's actually moved by it. Now, Paul as he's preaching, he, he knows this man's background, he knows his beliefs, and he, he focuses really on two things. The apostle focuses on what the prophets really said. Now, he knows Agrippa believes it. Let's say, for example, I knew that you believed the Bible, but I wanted to say to you, do you actually really know what the Bible says? Do you, do you know what its main message is? Do you know what the prophets were actually saying? Now you may say, well, I have an idea, but I, I'm not really sure. I do believe it, but I, I can't say I really know fully what they were saying. Well, that's what the Apostle focuses on here, what the prophets really said. You'll notice how he's not so much looking at Festus. God may do what he wishes to do with Festus, uh, but his, his eye is on Agrippa. And so he focuses on what the prophets really said, and as well as that, he focuses on what Christ, in fact, did, or, if you like, what actually happened to him. What did the prophet say in the past, over the past 2,000 years, from his standpoint, what did they say, and what has actually happened in the last 30 years in connection with the life and ministry of this man, Jesus of Nazareth? Now, in connection with the prophets, 
he says this in verse 22. And this is him describing how um, God had called him to preach these things. And now he's preaching them. In verse 22 he says, Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand. Here's a man who's been in custody two years chained when he shouldn't be as an innocent man. To this day I stand, he said, witnessing both to small and great, and of course you in front of me are both great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses, now Moses he's heightening there especially, said what they said would come. That is, that this Messiah, the Christ, when he comes, would suffer and that he would be the first to rise from the dead and that he would proclaim light, knowledge, truth to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now the prophets proclaimed that, did they not? Go right back to the prophet Moses who was the man who gathered the material and wrote Genesis to Deuteronomy. And all that is full of the Messiah. From Genesis chapter 3, the first promise that was addressed interestingly to the serpent but concerned the man and the woman. That the seed of the woman one day would be born and that seed from the woman, born of a woman, would actually crush the head of the serpent. But as he takes down his foot on the serpent's head, his own heel would be bruised in the process. Now, that's the gospel. That's Genesis 3, either 15 or 16. And it is saying that a man-child will be born of a woman who will crush the serpent and in the process have a crushed heel hurt in the act of destruction, hurting himself. And from Genesis 3 onwards, the prophets are full of that. Of course, Genesis 12, when Abraham is called, reminds us that through Abraham's seed this time, all the families of the earth will one day be blessed. Isn't that a wonderful thought? The families there is a reference to the table of nations. There are 70 nations in Genesis Genesis 10. When um, the human race expanded throughout the world, they expanded into what the Bible describes as 70 people groups. These 70 people groups, who are in a, a larger number of nations now, but still 70 people groups, all these people groups will be blessed through the seed that is born to Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is still happening. Still happening. Praise God, like I often say, and I have to say to myself, even though things are going backwards here, they're not going backwards everywhere all over the world. The gospel of God is progressing exactly as God has foreordained it. At the speed, the rate of rapidity that he has foreordained, and the day will come to pass when the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the seas, 
and all the nations of the world shall bring their glory and their honour into the kingdom of God. In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And this idea of conquest through suffering becomes more and more expansive, more and more full as the Old Testament unfolds. In Psalm 22 there, around 900 BC, David is caught up in vision and he hears the prayer that the Messiah offers on a cross, on the cross. The Messiah, the Messiah's prayer that is still 900 years in the future, he hears that prayer, they pierced my hands and my feet. Another hundred years after that, 800 years before our Lord is born, Isaiah the prophet, writing Isaiah 53, speaks of a suffering saviour. One who is laden with stripes, weighed down with sin, heavily burdened, but marvellously delivered from all these things. Numbered with transgressors, buried amazingly with the rich and rising and sharing the spoil with his own people. Now, I could go on like that. Like the writer to the Hebrews says, time would fail me if I wanted to really, with you, go through the Old Testament and see the many ways in which the prophet spoke of a suffering and rising Messiah, a dying and a rising Messiah. And you say, well, isn't it amazing then when it happened that everybody didn't understand it happened? Yes, I agree. It's amazing. And isn't it amazing that you are not a Christian yourself? Isn't that amazing too? Isn't it the same kind of amazing? Isn't it staggering that we don't see what's obvious and clear regarding who we are, why we're here and where we're going? Isn't it amazing that we don't see ourselves how clear and how true the scriptures are? Isn't it all amazing? Have you not seen and heard enough yourself? Even in the witness of Christians around you or in your own family even, have you not seen and heard enough to persuade you of the truth? Isn't it amazing you don't believe? Yes, it is. Of course it is. That's what the prophet said. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. But let me tell you or remind you, he says, what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. And how he rose from the dead. And you'll notice that the resurrection is his great emphasis in what he's saying to King Agrippa. This man Jesus of Nazareth lived. You know that. This man Jesus of Nazareth died. You know that. There's no denying that people took him and crucified him. Under Pontius Pilate outside of Jerusalem. I saw him myself, Paul says. And he commissioned me on the Damascus road. And I know you know these things, Agrippa, because these things were not done in a corner. That's one of these interesting old King James expressions that's come into the English language. Sometimes you hear people say that that wasn't done in a corner. Well, that comes from what Paul said to Agrippa. None of this was done in a corner. It's only 30 years ago. It's only 30. It's less than 30 years ago. You know yourself, ask anybody. Ask anybody. Ask anybody in Jerusalem. There are plenty of people living who saw the trial, who saw his death, who witnessed that death. 
As for the resurrection, well, Agrippa, ask me, ask the apostles. You know them. People will tell you that they were timid men who found it difficult to testify and difficult to speak until suddenly they were transformed by a marvellous event to be bold preachers speaking in tongues everywhere. Ask them. Ask the 500 people who witnessed his resurrected body on one occasion, many of whom, as Paul says to the Corinthians, are still alive. Ask them. The prophets said that the one who suffered would rise. He suffered, he died, and he rose. And already, Agrippa, the light that he brought into the world is shining. It's shining as I'm preaching to you, Paul says to Agrippa. You know yourself that churches are being planted all over Europe, all over Africa. It's going into Asia. Why? Because the prophet said so. That he would not just bring consolation to Israel, but he would be a light to lighten the Gentiles. That, Agrippa, is what's happening. I am standing here testifying to what the prophets have always said. In fact, the Pharisees have always trumpeted the resurrection to be a fact. And I stand here as a witness to the truth of the resurrection. Do you believe the prophets, Agrippa? If you believe the prophets, and if you know that these things were not done in a corner, can you not join the dots? Do you know what two and two make? Can you not put together the life and death and resurrection of this man and the whole of the Old Testament over the last 2,000 years? Can you not put these things together? And of course the accuracy of these prophets is, is just down to a T. The betrayal of Christ in Psalm 41. The desertion of the disciples in Zechariah 12. The vinegar given to him on a cross in Psalm 69. His silence during the crucifixion, Isaiah 53. As I said already, the piercing of his hands and feet, Psalm 22. No bone broken in his body, Psalm 34. Dying with sinners, Isaiah 53, parting his clothes after a lottery and a gamble, Psalm 22. None of these things less than 800 years before the events that have not been done in a corner. Now it reaches a point where we have no excuse for not believing. That's not just the case with Agrippa, it's the case with you too. If you are honest enough with yourself. Now, I've no idea how much or how little of that Paul said. One thing we always know is that more is said than is recorded in the Bible. But Paul puts him on the spot. Do you believe the prophets? Do you believe the Bible? And I can ask you the same thing. Do you believe the Bible? Well, how does Agrippa respond? Well, famously or infamously, there are different ways of translating this response. Uh, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. There are some versions of the Bible that translate that as though um, Agrippa was speaking, speaking in a dismissive way. Do you suppose so easily that you can persuade me to become a Christian? Now, I'm only mentioning that uh, just to let you know that I'm, I'm aware of that and I'm aware of the reasons why some people translate it like that but uh, I'm just going to say to you that this translation is better than that. That's my own uh, honest opinion of it from the Greek language. And 
that it does the most justice to the way in which Paul replies to that response. This is just how we should take it. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost persuaded. In other words, what Paul says, Agrippa is effectively saying that what you're saying is consistent with many things that I believe. Unlike what Festus has said, doesn't sound mad to me. Doesn't sound irrational. You don't sound like a crazed maniac to me. In fact, it affects me greatly. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Christian, interestingly, was a term first used of the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in Antioch. And it wasn't a term of endearment. It was really a term of reproach. The followers of that man, the followers of the hanged man, in the way in which king of the Jews was meant to be a derogatory term when it was written above his head, so was the, uh, the Christian meant to be a derogatory term for the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Agrippa is saying, you are almost persuading me to become a follower of that man, to be like you and to be like the people that you represent. Well, so you should be almost persuaded, Agrippa. You should be persuaded too. Christianity is based like we saw and like the apostle said on things that were not done in a corner and on historic truth and that's why it is our reasonable faith. But the fact of the matter is that he's only almost persuaded. Why do you think he's only almost persuaded? Have you ever been almost persuaded yourself? If it was almost persuaded, and suppose you are actually almost persuaded, why is it only almost? Sometimes the reason why we're not persuaded of something has little to do with the mind and a lot more to do with the heart. What I mean by that is at the end of the day, you believe what you want. You believe what you want to believe. And if you don't want to believe something, you won't believe it. And it's amazing how that affects many people's response to the gospel. You, you don't believe it at the end of the day because for whatever reason, you don't want to believe it. There is, there's no real reason why Agrippa shouldn't say, you know, Paul, you're right. What you're saying about the Old Testament and the life of that man that has just died is so true. It dovetails. But no, you almost persuade me. Why almost? Well, I wonder if the key lies, in a way, in the three people who are nearest to him at the time. There's the man on his right, who I would understand to be Festus. It's always possible Festus is on his left and Berenice, his sister, is on his right. That's always possible. But let's say for the moment that Festus is on his right and Berenice, 
his sister is on his left, and in front of him is Paul the Apostle. There's something about these three people that may make him stop and pause before he commits himself to believe or to faith. What I mean by that is just this. Let's take first the man at his right hand, and that's Festus. Now, although Agrippa's the man here called a king, you should be under no illusion as to who's boss. Uh, the Herods at this point are just puppet kings. They, they're, given a, they're given a good life. They're able to send their children to Rome to be taught um, the best education possible in Rome, but they're really puppet kings. They're, they're suffered, they're allowed to be there to appease the Jewish people and to appease their own vanity too. The procurator is the man. Festus is the man with the real power and the real authority. And the Herods were well known for fawning and flattering their way uh, to keep their power and to keep their dignity. Although their, their real role as kings became constitutionally smaller and smaller and smaller, they loved nothing better than to be in their purple and to display their kingship. But the man on his right hand has just pronounced this man a, a raving lunatic and that everything that he knows and believes means that he's a fool. Paul is mad and Christianity is madness. Now, if you live for your position and you know that your position is dependent on the attitude of Rome towards you, then you're going to be careful about committing. You're going to be careful, especially if you are out to impress others. And you know, very often you don't like people uh, looking down upon you as somehow being of less intelligence than they are. And uh, that can sometimes happen, you know, if you say to somebody that you're a Christian, you know fine well that the response may have something like, oh, do you believe that? Uh, do you believe that rubbish? Uh, as though you're unintelligent, you're unlearned, you're not taught, you're not educated. It's not easy to believe if it puts you level with uh, leprechauns, with believing in leprechauns and fairies in the eyes of people. It's, it's not easy to be thought foolish and unintelligent. And Agrippa doesn't want to go that far. Honesty will compel him to say, you're making a good case. You're saying something that's worth considering, but I am not, at the end of the day, persuaded. The desire to impress an elite. Does that keep yourself back? The fear of being thought a fool, being labelled a fool, does that keep you back? Pride, pride. I often say, Dig away deep down into the heart. That's what you always find there. Your pride doesn't want anyone to think you're a fool. Or maybe it's his sister on his left. Now, it was an open secret, sadly. Um, although there's no proof. And, and when there's no proof, you know, even though these are historical figures going way back you don't want to say something was definitely the case if it was not definitely the case but let me just put it this way that it was a, an open secret amongst Roman writers that the relationship between these two was an incestuous one. There's the possibility that she was his half-sister but the Roman writers say that it was an incestuous 
relationship. Now, let me just say in connection with that, that as far as the Herods go, sad to say, that wasn't unusual. His great-uncle, Herod Antipas, stole his own brother's wife and effectively tried to seduce her daughter. So, that's not good, to put it mildly. There's a lot of evil in the Herod family and a lot of incest and that kind of thing. Now, just as the desire to impress people can keep out, keep you out of the kingdom of God, so can your love of pleasure and your love of sin. Now, there are all kinds of sins that keep people out of the kingdom of God. And of course, it's sin of one kind or another that always keeps people out of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here to deal with the sin, and it's just sin that keeps you out. And you have to be ruthless with that sin, because you can't just take your chosen sinful life with you into the kingdom of God. There's a kind of proclamation of the gospel that allows you to do that right now. It's been around for years. I suppose in some form or another it's always been around, but it's rife today, uh, where believing in Jesus is just a plus thing in your life. You add it on like an insurance policy. Nothing has to change except that you just follow the Lord Jesus as well. Now, repent and believe the gospel was Jesus' first message. Repent and believe the gospel. Believing the gospel requires change. Change of mind, change of heart, change of life. Change. It's all about change. Turning around in a different direction. And that can sometimes be hard. It can be hard. The Lord Jesus said that if it's your hand that's causing you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. If it's your foot that causes you to sin, where you go regularly and a place you love to go, cut that foot off. It's better to enter into life lame than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. If it's your eye that's causing you to sin, what you look at or what you lust after, pluck your eye out because it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into hellfire. Choice, choices, choices. And maybe it is the choice of leaving sin, leaving pleasure, leaving a relationship that you're enjoying or you're in the middle of, something like that that you're called to do in order to enter into the kingdom of God. And you can't do it. You can't pluck out the eye, you can't cut off the hand, and you can't cut off the foot. You prefer the sinful life at the end of the day to the Christian life. If you didn't, you'd be a Christian. It's one of the reasons why people are almost persuaded, because they don't want to be persuaded because it upsets the life. And it does. It does upset the life. It's in a good way, but you can't see that. So there are two people beside him. One represents intellectual um, acceptance, credibility. The other is a, a chosen, sinful way of life. And what about the man in front of him? Well, that's interesting. What about him? 
There's a man who was high up in Jerusalem, university trained. As far as people are concerned, he's lost his life and he's lost his career. He's been two years in custody and he's seen as a fool and a madman and he's here in front of him bound and chained for his faith. It's quite clear that to become a Christian, there's a cost involved. Not just the cost of saying no to a chosen sinful life, but the cost of the persecution that may just come your way. And to some degree or another, it's always going to be there. To some degree or another, it is always going to be there. And sometimes when we make the choice, it's considerable. It, not that long ago, well, it's getting longer now, but we thought of Moses who had to make the choice. Of, of, of giving up being a prince in Egypt, effectively, to identify with God's people who were in slavery. And he knew that for him the choice meant to suffer affliction with the people of God or just carrying on enjoying the pleasures of sin in the Egyptian royal court. Very stark for him. It's sometimes it's, more often than not, it's not quite so stark for us, but the cost is there. And he can only look in front of him at this man who seems to the world to have lost his life and he's manacled there, he's chained, he's appealed to Caesar and he's lost everything that he could have had. There's a cost involved. But whatever the price, Agrippa just doesn't want to pay it. Maybe you don't either. Of course, the problem is that until we see things properly, we don't assess that cost properly. We don't understand the gains and the losses. Sad to say, when we're looking at them through natural eyes, we get them all wrong. Uh, the people in the auditorium there would feel sorry for Paul, and they would wish that they were people like Agrippa and Festus. Take the right pair of glasses and you see everything the other way around. The person really to be envied in the auditorium is Paul. The people to feel sorry for are Festus and Agrippa and Bernice. The people in here to feel sorry for are not the Christians here who are having a hard time, maybe suffering in their families, maybe suffering in their marriages even, suffering because they're Christians. They're not the people to feel sorry for. The people to feel sorry for here are the people who have everything and who think that's enough and who think they will get more and that will be enough. They're the people to feel sorry for. You're the one to feel sorry for if you're not a Christian, not you who are a Christian. But he knows that becoming a Christian means contempt. And like I said, I think that's why he uses the expression, almost you persuade me to become a Christian. But it's hard to become a Christian sometimes when you know that that term will be a term of contempt. Now, Paul is quick to see the tragedy of it. He just responds like that, and he says, I would to God, he says, which is an expression that means I wish, or, or even if only, if only, he says, I wish that all of you, not just you, Agrippa, but all of you here today were almost, not just almost, but all together, as I am. Pity me? Do, do you pity me in my chains? I wish you were all together as I am, he says. 
except for these chains. Not that these chains harm me, it's just that I don't wish them on you, that's all. Otherwise, I wish on you everything that I have, everything that I know, everything that I believe, everything that I've inherited, everything I've got in the gospel, I wish them for you. There's, there's a lot of nearly men and women in the Bible. We're all familiar with the rich young ruler who was very attracted to Christianity, but more attracted to wealth. There was another young man of whom the Lord Jesus said that he was not far from the kingdom of God. What an interesting assessment. What an interesting expression. You are not far from the kingdom of God. But we all know, don't we, that at the end of the day you're either in or out. And to be a yard short at the end of the day is the same as being a mile short, or even a thousand miles short. You're short, and you haven't made it. To be almost persuaded is to still be unconvinced. To be almost pardoned by a jury is still to be condemned. To be almost healed is still to be sick. To be almost rescued is to be completely perishing. To be almost saved is to be altogether lost. And nothing can change that. Nothing can change that. To be almost persuaded or almost saved is to be altogether lost. As the hymn writer said, almost persuaded, come, he said, come today. Almost persuaded, turn not away. Now, if you are at a point where you are almost persuaded, ask yourself, can I afford to stay here? Can I afford to stop there at the door? Can I afford to rest content even for a while with being not far from the kingdom? Come today and turn not away. Bright we've seen Sergius Paulus in Paphos, Cyprus. We've seen Gallio in Corinth, Felix and Drusilla in Caesarea, Festus and Agrippa in Caesarea. They all have much to teach us, but one thing that should stay with us is that only one of them believed the gospel. I hope you are of that number that believes. Let us pray. <clears throat> o Lord, our God, we pray and call upon you as the author of salvation to send your light forth and your truth. The Holy Spirit who alone persuades the heart bringing the true light of the gospel and that power that actually renews the will and changes it to enable us to love and to embrace what we never loved and embraced before, enabling us to, to turn away from what we loved so much. O oh, grant us to turn from sin and to embrace a new life, in Christ. Bless our meditation upon these truths. Continue with us through the rest of your holy day 
Bless us in our homes and families and be near to us as a congregation. O oh, may your kingdom come even amongst ourselves and in our own hearts. In Christ's name, Amen. Let's uh, close singing in Psalm 81. Psalm 81. And at verse 11, after God has uh, called the people uh, to listen to him, we read in verse 11 that yet my people to my voice would not attentive be, and even my chosen Israel, a really privileged people, he would have none of me. So to the lust of their own hearts I them delivered, and then in counsels of their own they vainly Wondered If God's not our guide, we foolishly stumble around in our own wisdom. But oh, that my people had me heard, that Israel my ways had chosen. I had their enemies soon subdued, and my hand turned on their foes. And in verse 16, he tells us that he would have fed them with the finest of the wheat and filled them with honey from the rock to eat. 11 to 16, we stand to sing.
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ yeah. and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.